Hey there, this is Mark Kelso, and you are listening to Talking Blues. Mark is here on a very rainy, rainy day. Thank you for coming on a, such a miserable day. Uh, my pleasure. I don't mind the rain. I mean, I was born in Belfast, so rain, <laughs> oh, that's true. rain makes me homesick. <laughs> and I thought, I thought maybe I should just give him an out. But you probably recorded an album and did a lesson this morning already, based on the sketch, <laughs> based on what I've seen you accomplish. Um, I want to open up with the video that that I saw, um, Enuma Elish. Mm-hmm. So somebody posted that on Facebook. Gary Taylor, the drummer. Oh, right, okay. And I watched it, and I was stunned. Like, I just thought, wow, what a beautiful piece of music. Oh, thanks. It's almost like a, like a Bohemian Rhapsody of drums <laughs> or something. <laughs> Tell me how you create something like this. That's funny. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Freddie Mercury. I mean, that guy was a, an unbelievable genius. Um, yeah, Enuma Elish, the, the title is from uh, the Sumerian uh, creation epic. Just, you know... I, I, I'm very interested in ancient civilizations and things like that. And I thought, Enuma Elish, that sounds like a cool title. Right. You know, creation epic. And I thought, in, with the similarities of uh, the original uh, percussion instruments would have been the human voice and either human body or some kind of drum thing being hit, and, you know, hit, hit with, uh, you know, on the hands or whatever. Right. And I thought I would do a piece that would just, that, that would sort of, correlate to the title something that's been around since the dawn of time the vo- human voice and drums and uh, so I started creating this piece for a record that I had called Lost Kingdoms and I think that's going back to 2002 and it was just when digital technology was starting to be available for the home recording studio so I got some mics and some drums and I just started singing things into my computer and looking for ideas and sections and, and singing Am I correct to think singing drum percussive yeah. beats? Yeah, singing phonetically, you know, you know, or whatever. Right. The things that drummers normally do 24 hours a day <laughs> and people are always bugging us about, say, shut up with that. But we can't help it. It's just it's the way we express ourselves. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool? Now, I'd been listening to this African drummer from Cameroon called Briswasi, and he had done an intro for one of his songs um, and um, called Flip Swing. And I thought it was a drum voice combination. I thought, oh, that's so cool. But he just did it for the intro. And I thought, I wonder if I could create a whole song like that. So I started singing bits and pieces into my computer and and then sort of editing bits and pieces that I like. And then, then I started to find sections. And then I've always liked to sing. So I just started uh, getting some percussive parts and then some, some harmonic parts. And then a friend of mine, Roberto Occupinti, he happened to be at the house. And I said, hey, check out this thing I'm doing. And he sat down at the piano and, and said, hey, you know, on this part, you should harmonize it like this. And he gave me some pretty hip kind of jazzy chords. So a lot of the, a lot of the har- harmonic stuff on there, uh, Roberto kind of helped mm-hmm. me with. And then I just built the song. And just, you know, added some African drums and, 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 and I just tried, tried to make it into a percussive piece. And then, and then when I started doing my DVD back in 2015, I knew I wanted to make that a piece. Because the DVD's got 
uh, video uh, uh, compilations of me playing Afro-Cuban music, Afro-Brazilian music, jazz, New Orleans, and kind of rootsy pop and some funk. And I thought, well, I'll add, I could, I, I've still got the track for this. I can overdub some new drums and then uh, and shoot a video. And I thought, we'll do multiple voices. And I don't know if you caught this, but um, when the, there's the four faces of right. the video, I'm dressed in four different colors of shirt. How many vocal overdubs were there? Ooh, a couple hundred. Like a lot. Wow. I just, I, I multi-tracked everything about 10 times and just kept layering and yeah, layering. Yeah, yeah. So every piece has got, you know, you know, with digital technology, you could just keep going. So I just kept building and building. And so at the end, there's probably about, you know, uh, you know, 200 vocal tracks on there, multi-layered and, and tracked. But I probably did the drum track, I don't know how many times for the record. So a lot. But the one thing I wanted to say about this, the colors of the shirts, yeah. I had yellow, white black and red and i i wanted that was sort of the the four original people so the the color was oh, meant okay. to reflect the four uh different kind of nations of people around the world oh interesting through history i don't think people catch that but that was a little subtle uh, uh homage to that i suppose well i did catch the fact that you're wearing different different colored yeah. shirts so so maybe I should correct myself, but maybe more like a percussive version of I'm Not In Love with all those vocals. Yeah, 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 the, the 10CC tune. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a great song. Yeah. I love that song. Yeah, but yeah, everything is done with, with the voice, yeah. So uh, do, you, um, do you use musical annotations in this, or is this all memory? Because when, um, when I watch you perform that thing, I, I just, I'm amazed that... Well, it's like anything else, you just learn it. You know, I, I know the piece, and... Um, it's just like another song, so it's just learn. I know the sections. Right. You know, there's the there's the intro, and then the drums come in, and then there's a melody part, and then there's a couple of breaks. So I mean, even though I wrote, I recorded that, and 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 originally back in you know 2002, I still could, if I heard it now, I could sing along with the whole thing, just like you could sing one of your favorite pop tunes. Oh, you haven't heard me sing. Yeah. But um, you know, when you, when, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. when you, when you memorize, you've heard something so many times, you just commit it to memory. Is it at all possible to perform that piece live? Uh, not by myself. No. Um, I have offered it to some choirs and uh, the only, the only, the only uh, group that ever did it was a drum corps group run by a trumpet player, Jason Logue. And he thought it was cool, and he had his, uh, his drum chord do it. So the drummer sang it and played a version wow. of it and sang it. It was pretty funny. You know, it was pretty cool. I'm sure. You know, and, uh, but I've often thought it would make a cool choir piece. But it's, it's a little bit rhythmically adept, so you'd have to have singers who, you know, had strong sense of rhythm yeah, yeah. To, to do it. But it's not, it's, not, it's not impossible, that's for sure. Well, it's a stunning piece that people have to check out. I was just so huh. moved by it. So. Thanks. Um, Thanks. And that's the reason why I reached out to you. And then I realized, you know, <laughs> what an amazing drummer you are and what an accomplished career you've had so far and, and continue to. I know your dad was a drummer. Yes. Tell me a little bit about your dad and his drumming. <clears throat> well, my dad was a part of what they call the Irish show bands. And that was a circuit... Uh, that came through all Northern Ireland and the south of Ireland um, uh, back in the 60s and maybe probably before that. But in the 60s and 70s, that was kind of the high heyday of the Irish show bands. And my dad was in a band called The Witnesses. 
And so he was always touring and traveling a lot. And he traveled around the world, the United States, Australia, and Canada. And, and that's how he ended up emigrating to here with, with the family. He liked Canada and didn't, you know, the, the Troubles, the, what, what's known as the Troubles, the real, pro, you know, mm-hmm. the real Irish, British, Catholic, Protestant uh, dilemma in the 70s was really at a height where it was very dangerous to raise a family. And my dad decided to emigrate to Canada and then brought us out. He'd been here, liked it, and knew that if he didn't like it, it wasn't that far to go back to Ireland. <laughs> Australia he liked, but it was really far, and he decided, well, okay. And South Africa was another option, but also really far. So he chose the closest place, which is how we ended up here, just sort of like that. But he, he was in a band called The Witnesses, and he played drums, and he did some singing. And one of the other uh, performers in that band, which was funny, is, was a guy named Colm Wilkinson, oh. who went on to great fame yeah. as the Phantom of the Opera. So I, I grew up, I've known Colm since I was like four years old. I was at his wedding, you know, when I was a kid. <laughs> so I've known him for years. You know, he's moved back to Ireland now. But, uh, but my dad did that and then came, you know, as I said, you know, came to Canada. And he's still, he's still out there singing. He does the senior citizen circuit. He takes, his, he takes his, his PA in and he's got about 350 songs on his iPad. And he can sing anything. You want some Tom Jones, Engelbert Humperdinck, Frank Sinatra, Johnny Mathis, he has all that stuff down. And the people in the, in the homes, they love that stuff. It's yeah, the music yeah. of their era, you know? So he made his whole living being a musician. Mm-hmm. What did that teach you? or What perspective did that <clears throat> give you about being a musician when that, you were young? Well, how difficult it was, you know? Right. And it was probably very tough on, on his relationship with my mother because... Back in those days, all the gigs were six nights a week, so he was out every night. So my mm-hmm. mom was home with two kids, you know, a lot. So that 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 was difficult, uh, and then just just the the unpredictability of being work, not work. And my mom had a regular job, you know, day job. So I remember him saying, you know, Mark, if you like music, don't get into the business. When I was very young, but I couldn't <laughs> not. To it, you know, I I, I made a very uh, conscious decision at 13 that I'm doing this, and I'm not doing anything else, and this is going to be my life, and I'm going to work really hard at this because I love it and I want it, and I can't see my life without it. Can you can you give me a sense of what that life represented in your mind at 13? Just absolute joy, you know. Any time I played drums. It was just, I was drawn to drums. I was drawn to drums. I was drawn to music. I was drawn to rhythm. I was drawn to, drawn to anything interesting sounding. Um, and, you know, and I had so many influences growing up on record and live that any, just things just, I don't know, they just, they just captivated me. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to know how to do that. What's that? What, that's a Brazilian room? That, that's from Brazil? What is that? I love that. I, I, how can I learn that? And I would just listen to it constantly and constantly. You know, how, even when I was a kid, so much of my, my musical sort of uh, discography would have been stuff that wasn't even in English. Right. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the language didn't, was not a barrier for me because I was how so that, involved in the rhythmic aspect of it. How did that come to you? Is that because of your dad? Or how did you get exposed to <clears throat> Well, my, when I was a kid, like, I had my three main records. Um, Powerful People, Gino Vanelli with Graham Lear, a great drummer, mm-hmm. Canadian drummer, who was a great influence on me. 
and I know him as a friend now, which is great. Uh, Live in Living Color, Tower of Power, with the, the great David Garibaldi, who also I'm very happy to consider a friend now. And then uh, Buddy Rich, uh, Mercy, Mercy Me, Live at Caesar's Palace. And the saxophone player on that record, Pat LaBarbera, was a, 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 a fellow teacher of mine in Humber and someone who's on my new record and has been someone I've known from I was 18. So those three records were pretty pivotal in me being the drummer that I am. And they were all, all, those, all three drummers, Graham Lear, David Garibaldi, and B- Buddy Rich, all had spectacular technique and all very different, all very unique. And that was where I started. And it was a very sophisticated type of drumming. But when you're young, you don't know that. And I gravitated towards learning what they were doing. Um, and then, which is, you know, I became a little bit of an elitist snob as a teenager. <laughs> and I wasn't really interested in any rock music because this sounded, the rock drumming of the day to me, you know, didn't sound interesting. So stuff like the Eagles and Elton John, I came to love later. But I would have thought that, you know, Don Hanley and Nigel Olson were weak drummers because they weren't fancy. Um, did and, you ever go through that? Like when you first start, and I don't know what kind of drummer your dad was, but when you first start learning, do you not start at a very basic level or do you just go right, right to Buddy Rich? Well, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, my, my dad had great hands. Right, my dad was actually really influenced by jazz drummers. He liked right. Max Roach, and he loved uh, uh, Art Blakey. He had some of those records as well that I learned uh, about later on, and um, and and but he loved Buddy Rich as well. So he worked on his hands. And and there's a funny story of when when I first started when I was 12. We were on the road for six months in the United States. They were working various cities throughout the states. So I was going to different schools in different cities. And I came to him one day, for some reason, I wanted to learn how to play drums. Now, prior to that, I had gotten up on the kit once when I was about three or four, and at a rehearsal of my dad's band, and, and he said they heard drums playing, because the piano player was playing something, and he heard the, dr- heard the drums playing, he looked around, and I was on the drums, and he said, he tells me this story, because I don't remember, right. that I, it sounded like I was playing in time. And my dad said, stop, stop, stop. Okay, change the three four. Play a waltz, and he said he played a th- they they played a waltz, and I started listening, and I started playing, and I was accenting the three, and my dad just said, "This kid's going to be a drummer." He he knew, before I knew, and so when I was twelve, I went and I you know he started teaching me in the down in the lounges and the bars during the day. I would go down, and because he was a left-handed drummer, I learned the first year of my life playing left-handed, which is why I have a strong left-hand lead. Um, because coming from the other right. the other side of the brain kind of thing, and so he taught me that, and I uh, and he he saw he noticed that I started picking things up really fast, so he kept having to kind of push and push, and then it got to a point where it pushed too far, and I hit a wall, and I threw the sticks down and said, "That's it, I'm I'm done." I so How I, old I you? Um, this twelve. Okay. So I peaked, 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 was getting everything fast, and then hit a wall and and didn't like it because now I got stymied and I couldn't do it and I stopped and my dad thought oh no I've ruined it I pushed him too quickly too fast and he says you know he got excited by it but should have maybe held back a little bit and took a little bit more time again this is very fuzzy details Mm. this is all his recollection of that time you don't remember that at all I don't really remember too much about it other than I remember playing and working left handed on his kit and Mm. then I remember mostly I remember that because when he said you're right handed 
you should switch. I remember how difficult that was. I can imagine. You know, but when I was got to 13 and I got to, I was, you know, grade, uh, grade seven, music became a thing in school. Uh, there was no music in, in public school at that time. So when I got to grade seven, there was band. And there was concert band and stage band. And concert band, I played tenor saxophone, um, which was kind of cool because it helped me with my reading and learning about pitch and ultimately helped make my melodic uh, sense and right. singing. And then there was stage band, uh, but there was already a drummer in there. And I told the teacher that, you know, I want to play drums. He said, well, we already got a drummer. He says, can I audition? He says, yeah, yeah, sure. Because I wasn't anything on special on tenor. Right. So he wasn't, he wasn't assuming anything. And um, so when I played the drums, the teacher was like, wait a second. This is a little bit, you know. This is a little bit more advanced because, as I'd say, my dad was teaching me more jazz stuff, right. not just your basic two and four rock beat. So when I started breaking out that kind of thing, my teacher was like, wait a second, this is a lot higher advanced than kids his, in his age group. So I got that job and I played in that. And then we started our first band with um, uh, the Barrett brothers and Colin Barrett, bass player. I'm, I'm working with a gig on a gig tonight, oddly <laughs> enough. I've known him since I was uh, 13, wow. you know. And he was 12 and playing bass, and I was 13 playing drums. And he was obviously a major influence on why I became as good as I did, because I had a really strong bass player with me all the way. What was but that the, band? What kind of music? It was called was the Dynamite Five. And we were playing pop tunes. And I remember one of the first tunes that I learned to sing was, was a tune called Fox on the Run by The Sweet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fox on the Run. Okay. So I know your dad sang. Yeah. Um, how did the singing come about for you? Probably seeing my dad sing and, and play drums. It was just normal. If you sang, if you played the drums, you sang. <laughs> and then uh, heavily being in, influenced by the drummers of Gino Vanelli and listening to that music, I would just sing along. And then you know, listening to Stevie Wonder and Earth, Wind, and Fire, I just liked singing. The, the melodies captivated me as much as the grooves and the drumming did. So I would just know the tune and sing it. And I also loved to dance. You know, I had a, a, a great girlfriend in, in, in high school, Sharon, Sharon Helt. And she was a big, she loved dancing and she was an actress. And uh, so we, all the high school dances, I was always out there dancing. But I was like one of the only guys <laughs> dancing. I'm looking at my friends guy and going, guys, like, come on. It's a great way to meet girls. And they're like, no way, man. You know, but... Like, you know, again, they were listening to rock music, which was not stuff you danced to. Whereas I was getting into the funk and the, and all the groove stuff. Stevie Wonder, you had to dance to Earth, Wind, and Fire, Sly and the Family Stone. You hadn't, you could not move to that music. Okay, so did you ever want to come out, uh, off the kit and sing up front and I, dance? I did, I did. Uh, between 1988 and 1992, I fronted a pop band, Mark Kelso, you know, project. Okay. And I put out two records of pop tunes. One of them is on, on, on YouTube. You can find it. It's called No More Heroes. And it was very influenced by Steely Dan and Sting. And that was something I was really into okay, at, so at that, at that this era. Point, how old are you? And okay. what's your opinion of pop music at this point? Because you, you said that you were kind of a snob initially. I was initially, but then, you know, I mean, but, but, but. I mean, I did like Gino Vanelli. Right. To me, that was normal pop, but his stuff was kind of pretty sophisticated, jazzy pop. Yeah. Um, and uh, the all the, the pop jazz, funk stuff was popular music. It was just the rock stuff. 
just right. didn't interest me. Around that time, yeah, I was. I loved the Police. The Police was the first band in my my house that where my sister liked the Police, my mom liked the Police, my dad and I. Everybody liked the Police. It was a unique sort of meeting of family, you know, uh, musical influences in the whole family dynamic where everybody liked this one band. And Stuart Copeland's drumming was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I loved Sting's voice, and I loved those grooves, you know. And uh, so with Sting. I loved I loved that and I got into that and I fancied myself because I was a, I'm a high tenor having a high voice I started trying to getting into that I played in this rock band called Rain and they heard me sing and the manager Bob Lutella said you should sing out front you got a good look you know we could do something with this and I went eh, okay sure why not sounds like a fun you know I'm game to do anything once or twice and so I I started putting my own band together mostly of a lot of the local musicians around town that I knew and we put a thing together and we did you know Gasworks uh, Lee's Palace Horseshoe Tavern you know that kind of uh, that kind of circuit um, you know but uh, I I started trying to do the record and I met some really nasty people in the music industry mostly in the record company world and I won't mention any names but they kind of turned me off of trying to be a singer and I went, you know, if this is the kind of lifestyle where it is, where you're just dealing with people, ripping you off, burning you, you know, at all, 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 all corners, and really treating you horribly, like just, you know, I had one guy take my demo tape and go, you know, all right, uh, and he threw it in the garbage can right in front of me. This was a guy at A&M Records, and I was like, whoa. He says, what else you got? I was like. I was in shock. I said, wow, what an asshole. Mm. You know, um, and then I hooked up with these other people. Everybody basically I met in that whole scene were all horrible crooks. Did and, you? I, and I got out of it. I stopped. That, that killed my singing career. I passed on that. And I went back to drumming. Did you miss the drumming while you're, while you're doing that? Well, I, a couple of things. I always did a drum solo in the show at the end of the concert. So I played a little bit and it was very difficult finding a drummer I went through because I was a drummer I was pretty picky about drummers so I heard things but it gave me a unique unique perspective away from drums which helped me when I came back to drums I mean I was still gigging on the kit it wasn't right. like I had stopped so I was still doing all my other stuff but I had this side project where I sang I was doing like you know the bamboo or whatever and I had bands but when I was out front I realized how important it was to have the correct tempo because it was too slow it felt like the energy was dying it was too fast I couldn't get my lyrics out it was too loud I couldn't hear myself all these things that I went wow these the drummer really affects the band in, in a myriad of ways so I uh, went when I was back playing drums, it made me a better musician. So being out front was something that I really value. You know, when you went out front with the recommendation of that, um, maybe we have something here. Did you know what that meant? Like, you know, you you talked about wanting to be a great musician, which is still what you aspire to be. Yeah. The music industry was blowing up, and they were making stars or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then you get kind of put into that situation where mm -hmm. you, you're trying to make a name for yourself I mean what was the goal when you went up front and became a singer you know I'm not even really sure it was, as, as I say my serious thing was always drums so I knew I was always going to have that this was just kind of a side project that was a bit of a lark that you know lasted about three or four years and as I say I get a couple of records you know and I was committed if it went somewhere you know uh I probably would have went, went with it. And, and, and if I had continued, I have no idea if it would have 
gone somewhere or, or not. I have no idea. But um, it's not a big thing. I mean, I've worked with famous people, and I don't think I would have enjoyed any kind of that kind of fame where people were, you know, bugging you constantly and you couldn't walk the street. I don't think I would have enjoyed that very much. With being a drummer, there's a certain amount of anonymity that comes with that, that I can just do whatever I want <laughs> most of the time, you know. But but having tried that yeah, and then going back, like when you said, okay, I, this is not what I want to do, then was just being a drummer, what did that mean? Just playing live gigs or... Yeah, well, doing everything that I was doing, doing musical theater gigs, just making a living as a musician, uh, playing as a, being the best side man I could, touring and traveling, doing studio work, doing as many different styles of music as I can. I had my fingers in, as I say, musical theater, the pop world, the studio world, uh, the jazz world, uh, the African world, the reggae world, the Afro-Cuban, the Afro-Brazilian. I, I was playing with multiple uh, bands and just staying busy and trying to be versatile and doing everything that I loved. Okay, so when when you when I look at your discography, it's ridiculous how many different <laughs> types of music you play. How does that happen? How do you get into the studio world, and how do you get into it in a way that you can play reggae, you can play world music, you can play whatever you wish? Well, the simple answer is you just listen to the music, and you pick up what you're hearing. You know, so if I wanted to learn how to play reggae, I would just, I mean, I love Bob Marley. I think he was such a creative genius, great singer, great songwriter. And Carlton Barrett, I mean, when I listen to that guy's drumming, it sounds like he's from another planet. It's, it's, it's mystical. It's so heavy. The groove is so deep. And what he's doing is so simple, yet so hard to do. Right. It, you know, it's, there's just something about it. He doesn't listen to it and go... How is he doing that? That's like a complete and utter mystery, how to make it sound so fantastic. And then, you know, you listen to, you know, any of the great jazz drummers coming, coming up, you know, or, you know, and the jazz fusion things I was into, you know, um, I love music and I love rhythm. So if something's good, good musically and it's got good rhythm, I'm in. And I would listen to that music all the time, constantly, nonstop. So for me, that was my thing. And then being able to play that kind of music, I was just fortunate enough to meet people who helped my career along the way. Mike, I got my first break in town with a guy named Paul Christopher, and he was kind of known as sort of uh, like an Al Jarreau kind of singer. So, and, 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 and another band called Coconut Groove from my good friend Rick Lazar. Those two bands were anomalies in the circuit, in the city. So in the 80s, when you were doing PWDs and, 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 and the Chicken Deli and these, you know, the Chicken Wing Circuit, as they called right. it, these, these places, six nights a week, lots of musicians always came out because they were, uh, they were playing music that was not normally played by other bands. So all the other stuff was, everybody else was doing top 40. These two bands that I, were, I was in were not doing any top 40. It was obscure Stuff like you know, uh, Coconut Groove was playing a lot of Afro Calypso Caribbean music and funk, and Paul Christopher was doing you know album cuts from Al Jarreau and 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 some jazz tunes and 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 there was a lot of playing in the music, so the band was really integral and in part of the sound. You weren't just sort of you know just playing something simple. It was it was kind of complex and, and music, and as a result, we we got lots of work because whenever any of the clubs wanted something different. Those were two of the bands that they went to. So I got seen through many people in those bands, and then I got hired for gigs because the guys obviously liked what I did. 
And then my dad, of course, was working in the scene as well. And any time he worked with anybody, he would be bragging like crazy. Have you heard my son, Mark? <laughs> and then I think guys got sick of him. They're like, oh my God, this guy, Sam, won't, talk, talk, won't stop talking about his son. And, and then when they saw me play, they were like, oh, okay, your kid actually is pretty good. And then that would open the door to many other people and they would call me for their gig. And then one thing leads to another and then eventually you, you meet someone who's involved. You know, I met guys who were doing studio sessions on unlikely places like doing the Jewish wedding circuit or the Italian wedding circuit because everybody was gigging, everybody was playing. So I met tons of older musicians who were like, oh, who's this drummer? Can I get your number? You know, and then they would bring you into the studio and thankfully... I was able to do that with, you know, because getting into the studio, you've got to have good drums, good sound, be able to play to a click track, be able to read charts. And these are things that I was fortunate enough to have been able to do well and get myself into that scene. Very quickly? Like there was no uh, major adjustment to doing this? Well, uh, there was a little bit of adjustment having to work to a click track. But once I knew that was the thing, then I worked on that a lot because I saw that... You really needed to play to a click if you were going to do any kind of TV work or any kind of session work. So doing that a lot through the, you know, going from the late 80s up to present day, you know, up until I have a home, my own home studio where I do uh, recording tracks for people. They just send me files. I don't even meet them half the time. So that, that was fun. I, I love the creative part of that, making music and making records. Um, I know that you're involved in Humber College being the head of the percussion department. Um, and I want to talk about that. But before that, did you go to school for music other than your high school? I went to Humber College. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. 1981, 82, 83. I went there when it was a diploma program at the North Campus. And so what are you thinking when you go there, that you just want to be a better drummer, better jazz musician maybe? I Well, I knew about Humber when I was in grade 10 because our, they had a thing called the Canadian Stage Band Festival. And our band from our high school, the intermediate class, we went to Vancouver to, uh, I remember playing at the Bayshore Inn in, in Vancouver uh, for the Stage Band Festival, and we won it that year. But I remember seeing the Humber College A Band, as it was known, with a great drummer named Dave James. And they came out, and they were like a military machine they were so precise so energetic and it was kind of like it ripped my face off in grade 10 and I met Dave and he was super nice to me and I was like man Humber so in grade 10 Humber was on my radar I was like I'm going there so as soon as I graduated from grade 12 I auditioned and I got in and I went right into Pat LaBarbera's uh, ensemble my first year and then I played in that same A band uh, under Paul Reed's tutelage and uh, I did that in two years. And then after that, I was on the scene working. Wow. You know, so Humber, I wanted to go to already. And it wasn't about a jazz thing. It was just that this band was so freaking good that I wanted to play with those guys. I want to go to a school where musicians sound like, like that. They, all, they, they were, you know, college students, but they sounded like professionals. And that was kind of those. Everybody in that band became part of the next wave of studio musicians. You know, they were all out there working and doing things, big things in the scene in, the scene in Toronto. Lou Pomonti, you know, um, you know, John Johnson, Al Kay, you know, all these guys were, became the scene. And I was just a, a couple of years behind them, so I kind of got in on the tail end of their, their generation. I started working with some, some of those guys. Okay, this is a silly question, but 
when you're sitting there listening to your musical heroes, yeah, there's a great list of influences on your website. Thousands, <laughs> you know. But do you ever come across, with your talent, do you ever come across something you hear that you want to do that you can't figure out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, there's these guys in Brazil who have got this right-hand, one-hand, 16th note thing that's super fast. And for the life of me, I don't know how the heck they're doing it. I've been watching videos, slowing them down. I'm looking for a way to do it. You know, I'm just going, I would love to be able to do that, and I can't. And then there's some of those speed metal guys who can play double kick, like lightning fast. They've got this super, you know, part of me thinks they they want to make it like into an Olympic sport, but... (laughs) You know, uh, but the technique, technical thing has just come so far that I feel now that, yeah, some of the things that are being done out there that I just don't know how to do. But deep down, I don't really want to do them. Okay, but when you were growing up and you hear... Oh, when I was growing up, um, the, yeah, I mean, there were things that were elusive to me. The, 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 the feel of Afro-Cuban music. I learned a lot of the patterns, but they just never sounded right. I learned a lot of Brazilian patterns and they never sounded right. And the thing that was elusive was the feel. And I discuss it with my students. I talk about them. You know, I say, imagine a guy spending five years speaking French. And he decides, I'm ready. I'm going to go to France. He goes to France. But the guy's from Scotland. So he speaks French with a thick Scottish accent. And the people in France are going, man, what language is that? And this poor guy's going, oh, I thought I was speaking French. But he didn't get the accent. He didn't get the sound of it. Right. So for me, it's like when I was younger, I was learning the patterns. I was learning the rhythms. I could read them and I could play along with the music. But there was something elusive to me that was edu- I was educated by a couple of actual Cuban guys, Daphnis Prieto and uh, Hilario Duran, great piano player who I play with here. They hipped me in this to this kind of real old concept of African rhythms of there being a uh, two streams of, of, of rhythms happening at once like a combination of a three and a two a triplet based grid and an eighth note based grid and what they do is I call it weaving where at any moment they're kind of going in between these two rhythmic streams and so when it comes out it's never really uh, very rigid or strict it's got this loose kind of thing. And once I learned that, that opened up my brain. I was like, ah! It was like a light one, light bulb. It's like, that's what it is. That's what it is. Trying to understand that was something that I couldn't figure out when I was younger. Now I kind of understand it and I'm working at it. You know, and then when I first went, when I went to Cuba and I saw my first Roomba group, that was a life-changing experience for me. It was like a spiritual awakening. It was a, the story was funny, you know. Uh, I went and I saw a Roomba, and I was at the back, and there was about three hundred people, and I was like, "Oh my God, I got to get closer!" And I literally shoved people out of the way, <laughs> and pushed people out of the way until I got to the front, and the front was cordoned off with a red kind of rope, you know, like a hotel thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Man, I'm not close enough. I need to be in. I need to be in this." I need to be in this. This is electrifying. I was literally being, my, my molecules were just vibrating at such a deep level. I was like, oh my God, I need to be in this. And the woman who was singing and chanting, she was, you know, reaching out to the people, all the tourists, say, do you want to come in and dance? 
And, and as soon as I saw her that, I just started kind of waving. I was like, hey, hey, doing. I knew where the time was and I knew where the pulse was. And she just sort of went motion, you know, you know, baila, dance. And so I danced, I started clapping the clave and she just looked at me like her head just <laughs> twisted off. She's like, what the heck is this? <laughs> What's this? She started laughing at me and dancing with me. And then the, the, the kind of spiritual part was that the sound was so intense and it was really hot and um, I might have had one or two beers you know um, and uh, I just thought this is the sound of life thousands of years ago this these these African chants whatever they're singing about I don't know but this is what has been going on for hundreds if not thousands of years and this is very old it's very deep and I, I, I had to stop dancing because I thought I was going to start crying wow. even, even though I talk about it I kind of go Ugh, takes me back to that moment and I thought I'm going to start crying uh, uh, and I had to stop and just kind of regather my, myself and then the tune stopped and I thanked her and I got out and I talk to my friends who were there and I say you know I tell people the guy who went into the room into the circle was a different guy who came out of the circle and then I started listening to I bought all the bands that were playing that day I bought their CDs and I went home and I listened to Afro-Cuban Roomba for about three months I drove my wife nuts she's like oh my god turn that off because it's just drumming and chanting right. and it's you know it's not something that everybody wants to listen to but for me I was trying to absorb that thing so that so so learning from people from the culture and then going to the actual country where the music is from and, and being and experiencing something like that was something that educated me in a way that I couldn't get without experiencing, experiencing it firsthand. You mentioned Daphnis Prieto. Yes. Um, I got a chance to see him a few years ago where he played a Scott Good composition. Mm-hmm. And it was a combination of jazz and classical music with yeah. a Griffin trio and Roberto yeah. Yeah, Acquinti. Yeah, yeah. And he kind of, he was the centerpiece to the yeah. both sides. Yes. And it was the most amazing drumming I had ever heard. Daphnis is a, a genius. I mean, he lived here for two years when he oh, defected, really? when he defected with uh, Jane, defected from Cuba with Jane Bennett's band. He was about 18. So I met him then. Wow. He was a young kid and he was living at Roberto's house for a couple of years. And he just sat at home practicing eight hours a day, like crazy, you know, <laughs> but, but did him well, <clears throat> yes, but he had come out of the schooling system in, in, um, in Cuba and, and they're, they're, the schools are all strict classical music they don't teach any folkloric music there you learn all the folkloric and, and Cuban music uh, in the streets right. with other musicians so he has a yeah I think I believe if I'm not mistaken he had a classical background where he played timpani mallets and classical snare drum but then on the side was learning about jazz and, and, and the, the, the local Cuban music you yeah, know, and, and so he's I would consider him a good friend I've known him for such a long time he's amazing he's totally amazing so one of the things that you mentioned was that Graham Lear and Gino Bonelli the powerful people was a huge influence on you major number of years later you play with Gino Bonelli yeah how does that happen Gino was on the same record label as Holly Cole who I was working with and there was a uh, are you familiar with the um, the Gildas no it's an award show, a charity, cancer charity. Oh, okay. And so I was playing it one year with Holly Cole. And Gino, Gino's always, he's a drummer, right? Mm-hmm. So he likes hearing drummers. And I met him 
there because he was on alert records i was like wow gino's gino's standing at the side watching me play and i was kind of freaked out but kind of thrilled that he was it was just you know there weren't too many other there was no other bands there he was singing i think to tracks and so he watched and he said hey you sound good you know and then that was it nothing came of it and then uh um and at that time my good friend paul brochu who played with Yuzeb was playing drums with Gino. So he always says I stole his gig, which just, I always felt terrible about, but I didn't steal it, just Gino made a change for whatever reason. And so there was uh, uh, later the next year, or sometime after that, um, Gino's drummer, Paul, couldn't do this concert uh, at, the, at the Montreal Jazz Festival. And, he's, and, and Gino called uh, Tom, Tom Berry, and, and then they got to me, and they said, can you play with Gino? He said, are you kidding? Of course I can. Great, you know, let's do it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, my dream come true. I'm gonna finally play with Gino Vanelli. This has been a dream of mine since I was 18 years old, and I'm now I'm probably, what, in my 30s or something. I can't believe it, like this is a dream come true. I'm, I'm following in the lineage of all these guys that I grew up listening to. Yeah, yeah. So exciting. And, uh, and then, Holly's gig was the same time. I was like, no. I was like, no, you know, something comes to you and then it's taken away. I was like, are you kidding me? I was really, I couldn't believe how bummed out I was. I was like, I, this can't be happening. And the, the concerts were at the same time, like within an hour. And I couldn't do, I couldn't even make them both. If I was going to do one and run to the next, I would have tried to do it. And then it just didn't happen. And I was just, really bummed I thought that was my one and only chance and then after that for whatever reason he, he called me to for a tour wow and even better and that was it and I was like this one I'm taking I'm not messing this up and then when I did it and we played brother to brother which was one of my favorite tunes Mark Craney the drummer I played the song because I listened to the record so many times I knew that song like the back of my hand and afterwards you know what wow man you Wow, Mark, you sounded fantastic on that. I said, I'm just playing what Mark played on the record. I know that song note for note, and I can't play it any other way. He says, well, just keep doing what you're doing. And we got along great. And in fact, you know, like my friends who know me and, and know my Gino Benelli phase, they laughed. They loved that I was doing this gig. They just went like, if there's anyone who is perfect for this gig, it's you because you love that music and the drumming so much. You know, and I probably was pestering him. Say, hey, Gino, can we do this tune? Gino, hey, Gino, can we do this tune? I, you know, Gino, he said, oh, no, I just, I don't, I'm, I'm sick of that one. Hey, Gino, can we do this tune? You know, and, and one of the funniest moments we ever had was we were on a limo on the way to a gig and... And we were talking about something about the Popper in Paradise record. And, uh, oh yeah, part three. And he started singing the thing. And I started singing it with him. And we sang the whole piece. It's the two of us. And the piano player, David Goldblatt, was like looking at, us, looking at me going, you really are a Gino fan. <laughs> like he said, I, I mean, I know you say you're a fan, but holy Christ, you know, you're, 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 like, a, you're like a stalker. I said, totally. I could be a stalker. <laughs> I loved the music and I knew it so well, especially those early records, those early first five records. I knew every song, every drum groove, every tempo, every tempo change, everything about them. You know, and I even had them to dinner with my house and I said, you know, can I nerd out? And I said, yeah, can we talk about every record and every drummer? And he's like, sure, what do you want to know? Okay, all right, on this track, you know, Jack Miraculous. Okay, uh, the triplet fill, you know, and I was such a nerd, but he, he humored me all the way. And, and the only reason I quit 
was because we were going to have a kid. So in 2005, you know, my son was going to be born in, in February 2006, and I was like having this dilemma. And we were in, we were in um, Venice, and I was talking to Peter Erskine's wife, and, and she says, oh, you know, Peter's really down the dumps. I'm like, why? She said, well, we're having empty nest syndrome. You know, and I was like, oh, well, I'm just about to have my first kid. I was like, ooh, yeah. She says, yeah, well, Peter, you know, he was traveled a lot, and he missed a lot of the kids growing mm-hmm. their lives, and he's feeling bad about it. And I was like, holy shit, this is a sign. I'm about to have my first kid, and I had to start thinking, do I want to be on the road and not see my son grow up? Do I want to miss that? And I, I went and talked to Gino. I said, Gino, you know, you know I'm having a kid, right? He says, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fantastic. I said, Gino, I'm not sure what to do. I mean, you know how much of a fan. I love playing in your band. It's my dream ever since I was 18, but I just don't know if I can tour once I have a kid. You know, I might... And he's like, Mark, you know, don't, it's fine. You know, I'm not going to hold a grudge. Uh, you're doing, you're going to make the right decision. If you choose to not work with me anymore, that's the right decision. Don't, it's, you're doing the right thing for your family. It's the most important thing. He says, I grew up with my son and we have a great relationship. And, and it's because I made sure that he was always with me. Him and my wife always came on the road mm-hmm. and I didn't miss any of that. And I was like, Okay, and then that was it. We, we parted ways. What was it like playing with somebody you hoped to play all your life and it actually happened? Thrill of a lifetime. Are you kidding? <laughs> and it lived up to what you thought it would be. It was even better. It was even better. And especially when we got to play tunes that, you know, I just got goosebumps. Every time I played, <laughs> people got to move. It's like, man, Graham Lear recorded this and I'm playing it on a stage for thousands of people. Are you kidding me? I was in absolute heaven. Every gig was awesome. And then when my friends saw it, they got even as much of a charge as I did. I was like, watching you play with Gino <laughs> Vanelli and seeing the big grin on your face, I was so happy for you because we all grew up together and we all wanted to play in Gino's band. And they're like, you're the one who did it. You know, and he has very high standards. Super high standards, especially for drummers. If you look at the drummers that have gone through his, you know, it's, it's a very select few guys. There's about 10 guys, and they're all fantastic. And mm-hmm. I, find, I, I feel privileged to have been included in that for the two and a half years that I did the gig. I know you toured with Holly Cole, so I presume that you, you were used to a certain level. Was Gino a level above that? Like, was that like the well, biggest it was a tour? Different, it was a different thing. It was more drum specific. Right. Uh, Holly's music was more focused on the, the vocals and it was more, it was, it was interactive and fun and creative. But Gino's thing, because he was a drummer, there was a lot of drumistic things in there that were just built. Here's this, this always this drum break and people got to move. I mean, who in a pop tune has a drum solo? <laughs> You know, and uh, Brother to Brother was like a drum feature, the whole song. Mm -hmm. So there's all these great songs, you know, Nightwalker. I mean, everything had great drumming. So it was never just sit down and lay lay, lay down a groove. It's interesting, though, because I was asking in terms of um, the size of the tour, the way you were treated. Mm. Right, but you go directly to the music. <laughs> I guess, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, the thing is, it doesn't matter for me. It's like five people in the audience, ten thousand. You know, it doesn't make a difference. You know, I sat in and I played percussion with Bonnie Raitt at Sky Dome, and there was like twenty thousand people or something, or eighteen thousand people. 
and it was just like, just want to play with the guys in the band, you know? When I played Beat and Murphy, and we played after Alanis Morissette at the Sadis Festival in Portugal, there was 20,000 people just thinking, boy, this stage is so spread out, you know? <laughs> and uh, uh, last summer, was it playing with Richard Page from Mr. Mister and playing Take These Broken Wings? It was like, I love this song, <laughs> you know, and Kyrie listen, I love this freaking song. I'm, I'm always, if I'm on stage, I'm thinking about the music and vibing with the musicians. I'm really not thinking about the audience. That doesn't affect me. I'm not thinking about, look at all those people out there. You know, you hear the applause, but I'm thinking, okay, what's in the tempo of the next song? You know, I want to make sure I you know, got all, do I know everything for the next song? After Gino and you make this decision, what did you get out of that experience with Gino Vanelli in two years of touring? Like, how did it change you as a musician? I don't know if it changed me. It was just uh, it was just a period in my life that I look back with incredible fondness of playing, you know, of achieving, I guess, a goal of when I was a young teenager, of playing with that, you know. Um, it's, 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 it's the same as meeting your idols, and they're great. Mm-hmm. You know, when you meet Steve Gadd and he's nice, you just kind of can't freaking believe <laughs> I'm in my office at Humber talking to Steve Gadd, talking about songs that he recorded holy smokes you know um i just it's just a thrill and it just i I don't know maybe it just makes me a better person because i'm just so happy about it i'm i'm happy i feel privileged to have had those experiences knowing that other people want to have those experiences and might not get the chance so i'm 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 terribly grateful for everything and you know i'm 56 now i'm not a young kid anymore so what opportunities are still out there i don't know but um, I'm thankful for every single gig, every single gig. You know, I'm playing tonight at Nolens with Brooke, Brooke Blackburn and Colin Barrett and his brother Dwayne. I'm look, I can't wait to play. You know, I'm, I, I'm at the point now where I consider every single gig a privilege. Tell me about ego. Did you ever have an ego? Was that ever an issue? I probably did, but... I mean, do you have to have I try an ego? not to. I try not to through experience of meeting people with large egos and kind of not digging them having large egos um i mean it's i met some very famous drummers and 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 it was really unpleasant and i remember meeting one very famous drummer and uh it kind of shook me that it was such a horrible experience that i i I kind of made a vow to myself that if i ever had any kind of notoriety where someone was asking for my autograph or you know, said they were a fan, that I would never treat them the same way this guy just tr- treated me. I'm sure there's, I, I don't know, I mean, I think most people might say that Mark's a nice guy. I would hope that, you know, I've just tried to be nice to everybody. Right. I'm sure as a teacher, I've come down on students hard. You know, sometimes they might not have dug that. You know, uh, hopefully they, they saw through that it wasn't malicious. It was just me trying to push them to be better. So tell me about that, being associated with Humber and teaching. When did you decide that you wanted to pursue teaching and, and I never decided I wanted to pursue oh. teaching this is a funny story <laughs> I Roger Flock my predecessor as the head of the department of music in Humber he uh, kept bugging me to come and teach and I was like nah nah I'm playing I'm a player I don't want to teach and then finally and I think in my 40s when I was about uh, 40 43 maybe 40, 40 41 
you know, I was uh, thinking, yeah, okay, maybe, okay, sure, I'll start teaching. I started teaching part-time. Had, had you taught anything before? Just privately. Okay. And I wouldn't even say I was a great teacher, cause, and I know that because people tell me that they had lessons with me, and they say they're the worst lessons they ever had in their life. Because I didn't know how to explain anything. I just did everything naturally, right. and never had to question anything until people asked me, how do you do that? And be like, um, I don't know. Like this. Uh, yes, just go like that, you know. And they're like, I can't do that. How do you do it? It's like, well, I don't know. Just I just do this. And they would walk away sort of going, ugh. You know? So um, I had to learn to become a teacher. Um, but they gave me a chance. Roger saw something. And then I, I, the thing about me is I'm really into drums. And I'm really that. into drumming. I'm really into rhythm almost more than drums. So when I get students who are excited about drums and rhythm, I'm super happy that we can share. Let's let's. Oh, yeah, you think, oh, come on, you know, I get really thrilled about it. And uh, so Roger retired in May of 2005 and said, Mark, I'm, I'm done. I've done 30, 34, 36 years or something. I'm quitting, you know, and I would, uh, I would really feel good about the legacy of the program if someone like you took over for me. And it was not like he, was, he could give me the, the job or anything. I had to go through an actual formal job interview, which was something I hadn't done since I was, a, you know, a kid before I became a musician, right. you know, so 18, I don't think I'd done a job interview because everything is word of mouth recommendation to get gigs. You don't have to do a job interview. Have you never done an audition? Well, no, I didn't do too many auditions. I did a okay. couple of auditions, you know, but uh, not too many. I was just always hired. So Roger said that and I said, Roger, are you kidding? No way. I see the uh, stress that you go through on this gig. Why would I want to do that? You know, uh, and he's like, well, you should consider it. And then, you know, a couple of days later, the, the, part, the head of the music program, Danny Christensen, came to me and says, Mark, can I talk to you? He pulls me in his office. He says, yeah, you know Roger's retiring. I said, yeah, yeah, he told me. He said, he said that you weren't interested in the position. I said, yeah, no, it looks like a really stressful thing. And he, he, he sobered me up fast. He said, Mark, I don't, think, I don't think you're taking this serious enough. This is a great position. It's a position that hasn't been available in 36 years. It's a once-in-a-lifetime op opportunity for you. I think you should talk to your wife. You're going to have a baby, right? He says, well, yeah. You know, so I'd already quit Gino's thing, and I'm getting ready for that. Now, unbeknownst to Denny, my mom was in the process of dying at that time. She, had, she was in her third year of ALS, so she died in June. She died a month later. So my mind was really not focused on school or job or position. So when they were talking about that, I was like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm more concerned about my mom, you know, and how much, you know, how, how to make her, her life better and these, what's going to happen? Because I didn't know anything about this disease, you know, right. it was, and, and so it was really horrific to go through. And uh, so with that, kind of in my back of my mind as a distraction daddy just said look you're gonna have a kid you need to think about this talk to your wife about it you can still tour in the summertime and there's breaks and but it's great you got a pension you know um steady employment you can stay in town you don't have to travel as much especially with the kids so and what kind of commitment is this is that nine this was full-time this was yeah kind of a nine to five or thing five days a week as far as i knew it turns out it's four days a week you know and, uh, but, I mean, I'd never taken anything on like this before, teaching in a classroom setting. I'd done master classes and clinics and stuff. Mm. And at, by that point, I was more used to teaching. But, you know, 
it was still a pretty big thing. So I went and talked to my wife. She says, this is a good opportunity. And I thought about this being an opportunity. And I thought if I didn't take this because my mom was sick, she'd probably be pretty pissed off at me. So I went back and I went back and said, yeah, okay, Denny, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply. And then so I said, here's what you got to do. Put your application together, get your CV. And when I looked at the resume, we need someone to do this. Or, or, or the job application, it was like, we need someone to do this. And I looked at it and went, this is my resume. <laughs> so I put my CV together and I tailor made it to every specific point on the thing. I looked at job interviews on online, how to go through a professional job interview, because I knew there were going to be people on the panel who were not musicians. Right. So they didn't know me or my reputation or anything about me. They're just coming in and they're going to judge a lot of what they see on my professionalism in a business uh, environment and a job application. So I looked at it and I tried to think of everything I could think of. Had my wife run me through the audition, or the audition, the application. Right. And I went in, I wore a suit and tie and I saw some other guys there in jeans and t-shirts and they're like, you wore a suit? And I said, guys, it's a job, ad, a job interview. I think you're supposed to wear a suit. And they're like, oh, damn. <laughs> so I felt good about having a little bit of an edge. At least I looked the part and I had a briefcase and they came in and I remember Ted Quinlan in the interview going, so Mark, could you give us a typical rundown of maybe one, one, what one class would be? And I said, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, here, I, I took the liberty of, of doing a... Uh, course outline for for 26 weeks of of subjects of things that I'd like to teach. Wow! And I gave it, and I had copies for everybody. You know, and I think there's one thing I'm a, I'm good at preparation, and I think that's why my musical career has done well. I'm meticulously detailed, and I you know pay attention to details. So I would go in and do the job interview, thinking, what can I where can I fail? What can, I, what can they ask me that I won't have an answer to? And I thought, if they ask me for anything, I've got to have something to give them. So I gave them this, and I, and, I, and I knew the interview was going well when Ted went. He looked through it, he says, well, uh, that takes about care of my next five questions. <laughs> I said, oh, that, I think that's good. You know, and then the associate dean was there, and, and she was asking me questions. You know, and I'd watched some, you know, uh, seminars on Anthony Robbins, public speaking. So yeah. I had done a little bit of that kind of uh, training so and I was used to talking to people and looking them in the eye making sure good handshakes so I was looking for all these little things that were part of the business world and I did it and I ended up getting a job I got hired the day before school started and it was chaos there were classes I didn't know I had an ensemble I said what um, <laughs> there's a second year master class oh no I got okay well I'll do the first year master class in both years and then I had one student come up and say hey Mark I'm here just transferred in from York I'm going to take both your master classes I was like oh you just killed my second year class and I was making it up as I was going along and then the summertime I was like and hit the books and going I got to figure this stuff out so it was kind of a free-for-all because they basically go okay you're hired go go <laughs> And it took me about five years to sort of get the program intact to where it is now. And now I've done things, and now I run a 13-piece ensemble. I'm doing arrangements. I'm doing things that I never thought possible. My bands, the Jazz Exiles, came out of me doing uh, play-along tracks for my students because, oh, well, let's work on something in seven. Okay, well, let me write a tune in seven, and we'll use that. And they go, oh, this is kind of cool. It's tunes in four and seven. And it became a Jazz Exiles tune on my first record. So this, the school benefited me in so many ways, musically and, and, and teaching. And now I absolutely love it. It's a lot of work, but 
I really enjoy it. And, and now 15 years in, I'm going, yeah, and 10 years from now, that pension's probably going to be pretty cool. For sure. Now, what, how much playing did you do during the first five years? Because I would presume it's quite a time commitment to get those courses in line. I did all the same amount of playing. Really? Yeah. I, in fact, had a show. I was doing, I think, um, I took a theater show because I didn't think I was going to get the job. So I took a bunch of work. And then when I got hired, I'm like, oh, damn. Okay, I think time-wise I can still make this work. My Wednesday class ends at 12, so I can still do a 2 o'clock matinee. So it was insane. It was insane. It was insane. And then in the second semester, my son was born. And if, as any parent knows, those first two months, you don't sleep. So I was dying. I was, I was dying. And I was falling asleep in my lessons. I, I just could, I was wrecked. The only thing that saved my life was there was an Ontario college-wide strike for three weeks where I didn't have to go to school. <laughs> so I said, some... are you going to pick it? I, no, I'm going to sleep. And that saved my life because I, 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 I don't know how I could have made it through. You know, my, my, my good friend, Larnell Lewis, is kind of going through that right now. He's got a great career with Snarky Puppy, and he just got hired full-time, and he just had his daughter. Uh, and he's, I said, man, you look rough. He said, dude. I said, yeah, I know. I did it my first year. He says, <laughs> now I understand. And like me, you just say, you just got to be meticulously organized with your time. You got to have good organizational skills. Okay, so I look at your career, and there's, you have to correct me, but I know on one section of your website, it says over 285 recordings. And another it's over 350 now. Something, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of recordings. I guess. And you've toured. You still play a lot. You're yeah. teaching. How does this happen? Like, how do you, is this just being organized and being driven? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Can I make it work? Am I, you know, I don't sub out of, of, of school too often um, because the courses that I teach, are, well, I, I, I can sub out of like private lessons or I reschedule private lessons, you know, but my master class and creative development, those are difficult classes to sub out of because they're so um, unique to what I do. So they're very specific and there's a lot of information in the classes and I can't always guarantee that students are going to get that. Because when, you know, when, when guys see my book, they're like, oh, wow, this is the one class? It's a lot of stuff. I said, I know. But it's very specific to what I know and what I teach. So I don't travel too much. I mean, I could take a week off here, maybe 10 days, you know, um, but I try not to. Just, Do you even want to? If it's a good gig. I mean, there was a, like Gino called me up a couple of years ago, said, Mike, Mark, I, I might need you to sub. There's a, I have a conflict with my drummer because he played in this, he plays in this other band, Pink Martini or something. And he, I've got a tour. And then um, it didn't happen. The drummer was able to work it out. But I was like, okay, I can make this work. It's 10 days. Uh, it's not, it's, it's okay. I think I can make it. But you if know? you had done that, how much rehearsal would have been, would have happened with you and the band? How would a rehearsal? Like, how much rehearsal would have happened with the Gino Vanelli band to um, fit you in for 10 days? It's hard to say. Well, one rehearsal. That's it? Yeah. Well. And maybe just a sound check. Because what he would do is he would send me live, live recordings. I would chart everything out from the live recording. If I had any questions, I'd ask him, call him, say, what's happening here? How does this work? Because I can't tell from the recording. Or if he sends me a video, I can maybe see it. Um, but that's how things, I mean, that's how most things happen in Toronto anyway. You get one rehearsal and you go and do the gig. So I'm a fast learner. I guess I said I pay attention to details. I know how to I know how to play the drums. So I can listen to the song. I don't even practice it. I just listen to it and I look at the chart or I write the chart. And I'm good to play the song. 
with minimal amount of mistakes. I have that confidence in my my ability. That's not. I don't. I don't think I'm being egotistical saying that. I just have a confidence from years and years of experience that I know I can do that. When did you get that confidence? At what point in your career did you think I'm good? I don't know if I consciously ever think that because I always. I would say. I still have more to learn and I've got more to improve. I would never, I don't like to ever, I would not like to say that I'm good. I have faith in my abilities. I'm confident in my abilities, but to come out and say, I know I'm good. I don't think that's false modesty. I just don't like to say something like that because to me, there's a completion to that, that concept that I'm good. That means that I know everything. I know everything there is to know, which I don't. So to me, there's a finality and a completion to, to good that I don't like. So I would never say that. I would always say, oh, yeah, yeah. You, someone says, you're really great. And I say, thank you. Thank you. I mean, but, you know, uh, just because it's good doesn't mean it can't be improved on. Mm-hmm. I always, I love that expression. Did you ever in your career go through a rough time where it was difficult or where you hit a brick wall other than the time when you were 12? <laughs> um, you know, it's been a long, long road. I've been playing drums for 44 years. I I don't recall any, if I'm honest. I don't recall any times where I always worked. I always worked because I took every crappy gig known to mankind. Circus, you know, a wedding or something that wasn't maybe high musical but paid 200 bucks or whatever. I, would, I always could justify it saying I'd rather play my drums on a shitty gig than work at, you know, some fast food place for minimum wage right. to make the same amount of bread in a week, you know, I might take a week in back in the eighties or nineties to what to make uh, two hundred bucks, but I can make that on one night playing drums. I'd rather do that. So, you know, and uh, and you know, I was probably not super professional all the time when I was young, and then I remember seeing another drummer not being professional, and I went, "Wow, that's what I do. I goof around like that on on, on gigs that are I'm thinking are beneath me musically," and I stopped. I made a conscious decision. I remember the exact place I was. I remember exactly where, where I was in the band and, and the drummer. And I changed my life right on that spot. I said, I'm never going to do that. I'm always going to treat every gig I do with respect. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody saying, oh, Mark was a you know, goof on this one. He fools around on this. I just don't do it. Because, you know, I remember also being told that uh, you never know who's in the audience. There could mm-hmm. be four people out there, but somebody could be really important out there going, wow, look at this guy's total ass on the drums, you know? You know, so a uh, difficult time. I don't think there was a difficult time working. Um, there's always been kind of things that I couldn't do, but I just worked through them until I got them. I'm determined. I mean, if you read my website, you know I'm a Bruce Lee fan. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Lee was, came through incredible, incredible hardships when he, you know, he was, he was, he was on, a, on a board and when he hurt his back for nine months and he decided to train his mind for nine months. You know, and he had an incredible willpower and strong mental capacity and fierce confidence in himself. And that, everything he did made sense to me on drums. Flow, timing, physical strength, good health, mental health, balance, focus, everything. I was like, man, you're speaking to me. And I took martial arts on and off throughout my youth. So I think that I was drawn to that kind of headspace of working at something, working hard at it, and not giving up, not quitting, never quitting, you know? When I look at your 
discography, your resume, I think of you as a, a very successful musician. I'm not sure success being relative, and I don't know how you view yourself, but if you agree with you've been working and being successful and achieved some of these dreams, what do you think is about you that allowed you to accomplish that? Well, I mean, success really to me at the end of the day is that, you know, I, I remember watching this uh, motivational video and um, it was a, this guy was a, had been a thalidomide baby. I'm like, this guy's a motivational speaker. This is unbelievable. But he played some drums in it, which is how it came to me. And he basically says, as long as you're standing at the end of the day and you don't give up, that's success. So it was defined in really simplistic terms. Um, so for me, I think I do a good job. I commit myself to learning people's music. Even if it's a one-off gig, I come in and commit myself to learning the music as good as possible. I, I hate making mistakes. So I take a personal pride in, in coming in and doing things, you know, within 95 to 100% accuracy. Um, I like to come in and fit in like a, a smooth glove and not have anyone notice that I'm a sub. And I, I take, again, personal pride in that someone says, and this is Mark, the first time he's playing for us. And people don't know. Right. They can't tell. I, I feel good that I've come in and successfully achieved something by being a chameleon and fit into something that I haven't done before. So I enjoy that. Um, I love music. My enthusiasm, I think, comes across when I play music. When I play with other musicians, people know that I'm into it. They look at me and they see me smiling. I carry myself professionally. If anyone has said anything about me that they felt was unprofessional, I remember I got busted for wearing black running shoes on a, on a corporate gig. And I, was, I realized, okay, you can't do that. I've got good shoes. I would change things, you know, and I always thought you'd live and die by your reputation. So if I do one thing wrong, my career's over. Or if I do one thing wrong, that word's going to spread 10 times quicker than if I do anything good. And I get along with people. I think I have a good sense of humor. Um, I love playing music, as I said. I'll come back to that because people see an enthusiasm with me, you know, and I can play, I think I can play all kinds of music. I know it's, I know what the gig entails. I know what's necessary. So if you need me to come and play simply on a gig, I love it as much as if I play something crazy. You know, I lost an audition once to Bruce. I didn't even audition, but um, Hugh Marsh brought Bruce Coburn to see me. He said, man, Mark, you'd be great. I'm going to bring Bruce down to see you with the Montuna Police. I said, that's the worst band for him to see me in. He says, why? He says, there's a ton of drum solos, and he's going to think that this is what I like doing. I do like doing it, but I can, you know, and he came, and he never, of course, he never called me. But then I remember playing with uh, Russell DeCarl from Prairie Oyster, and it was like bluegrass, and... I don't know the first thing about bluegrass music, and then, but I got that at rehearsal, and he says, "Mark, okay, great, man. It's nice to meet you. You know, John here, John Sheard has recommended you for the gig. It was me and George Kohler, so I knew the musicians. I was comfortable. I didn't know him. I didn't know the music, and he said, okay, this is kind of a Texas swing, and it was like, you know, and, I, and I'm into guys like Levon Helm, Ricky Fatar, so uh, you know, and and these guys who have come from a sort of Texas rock, Southern rock kind of thing. So I'm familiar a little bit about the vibe and the groove, especially with Levon, you know. And I can love Buddy Rich and Steve Gadd as much as I love Levon Helm and Jim Keltner. There's a simplicity in their groove that that talks to me, captivates me rhythmically as much as the fancy stuff that the other guys do. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
Steve also has a great groove. But so I'm talking to, you know, so when, when Russell started playing this tech swing, I was, and I heard it, I said, wow, like that's the real shit. That sounds awesome. And I thought, what am I going to play? I'm going to play this most simplest groove. I picked out one brush and I just hit one and three on the, on the, on the bass drum and I went, do, do, get. I just started playing this groove and I, and I looked at and, and, and Russell looked at me and he had a big smile on his face and I thought this is right I'm playing the most simplest thing but I'm trying to make the simplest thing sound the best thing I can do so for me it's always about being playing the, for the music and I mean that's the name of my DVD musician first drummer second mm-hmm. so I'm going to think about what's right for the music before I think of what's, what's right for the drums and a funny another funny story is playing with John Schofield at Hamburg, I got to play with Schofield, and we're playing some jazzy stuff, and I'm rocking out a little bit. We're having some fun, and then we're playing this 12-8 groove, you know, and Schofield's right in front of me, and this is the moment he chooses to turn around and go, happening. I'm like, this? This is what you say is happening? The most simplest of grooves? You know, and that for him was... Like he was digging that. I was saying, I must be doing something right. And, you know, so there was beauty in the simplicity of it, you know. When you teach, I know that you want to teach technique and, and, and how to do things with your students. But do you talk about attitude? Do you talk about professionalism? Oh, yeah. and- the very first class, the first, the first uh, very day of the first year student master class, we make a list. And the music, it's called uh, Necessities of Being a Good Musician. I don't even put drummer into the thing. And we make a list and we have a hierarchy of things that are prioritized. And that priority is, is the first top thing is listening. Listening is the number one secret to success. It has nothing to do with playing drums. Right. And then when we get down to that, we talk about time, playing in tempo. And then we talk about um, feel, being ahead of the beat, behind the beat. And then we talk about groove, your relationship with the tempo and where you feel the time. And those have, those, that's my three subcategories. And then we talk about technique and gear and professionalism and attitude. But I prioritize those other four elements. Those are like, okay, if you don't have these, like shake your hand, guys, and say good luck. And they're like, I don't even know what time feel is. I said, we're going to talk about it. And, and, and then we talk about those things. You know, uh, next week, and we're second class of the second semester, is the first class I'm going to talk about soloing. <laughs> we haven't even discussed that. Right. And we talk about a lot of things, you know. But the class last week was talking about hearing versus listening and how subjective they are and they're not the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to teach, my goal is to teach them to be mus- good musicians who play the drums. That, that is my ultimate goal. And if they go out there and they sound good in a musical environment, no matter what the music is, you know, that's great. That's what my concern, because then I know they can work and, and, and have a chance in the industry. 
does it worry you with all the changes in the music industry and also the fact that a lot of people aren't going to see live music as much as they used to? Oh, it's, yeah, it's a threat. It's a threat. And, and for me, streaming is the biggest threat, right? Your right. Spotify's and your Apple Music and those things. Because at least Netflix and, and Disney, they're creating content. Mm -hmm. So they might be streaming and people are, are, are rushing to go to the streaming sites, but they're, they're pr producing content and high quality content. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great shows on Netflix. And now we just got the Disney Channel. There's a whole bunch of movies that my kids love. So there's some, they're, they're taking the money, but they're creating content. What does Spotify do? They take your money. Right. And their content is made by somebody else. They're not coming up with new great artists. They're not functioning like a record label. That pisses me off. I'm not on Spotify. I got one record on a Spotify. I'll never be on Spotify. Do I care if it kills my career? I don't care. I'm not going there. People are talking about, oh, I got so many uh, uh, plays. Yeah, well, how many thousands of plays did you get to make $5? Yeah. <laughs> What's that going to do? Oh, uh, you know, maybe it brings people out. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm completely wrong. I don't know. But yeah, there's those elements. But when I go on Facebook, I see a lot of my former students out there working. Now, whether or not they're doing the, the false kind of promotion thing, I can't say. But I know many of them are doing well. And if I see them, they don't let on. There's the odd guy that goes, yeah, this business is hard. I say, yeah, that's an honest answer. But mm -hmm. I told you it was hard. I never said, you're going to go out and take the world by storm. You know, but we've got Humber students who are playing with Drake, Walk Off the Earth, um, um, The Weeknd, you yeah. know, uh, and, and various other Canadian bands all across the country. We've got Humber guys everywhere. So there are some of them who are out there doing it. Then we've got, you know, Alison Al, who's making a big name for herself on, on the, in the jazz scene. There's lots of creative individuals out there pushing the boundary. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're, we're going to try and bring it up because there's so many good musicians out there being creative. Are you still as passionate about music as you were when oh, you were a young kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More. More. Because I, I understand it more. I understand it better. And what I hear now, and I talked to my students last week about that, hearing versus listening. What I hear now is not what I heard when I was 18. It's not what I heard when I was 25. It wasn't even what I heard when I was 35. I listen to things now and I'm just going, oh man, how did I not hear that? It's unbelievable. So I listen... I like to consider my listening skills one of my strengths. So when I listen to something, I absorb a lot. I take a lot in. And I mean, and I remember going to concerts when I was a kid and wondering why I was so tired after the concert because I just spent the whole last two hours absorbing as much information as I could. Those were learning. They, they weren't, I was enjoying them, but I was learning and studying everything I heard. Well, which leads me to my last question. Thank you again for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Um, how do you get better at this point in your career? How do you get to be a better musician, a better drummer right now? I practice. I still practice. I build in things to my, well, you know, to my practice school. Uh, at school. Sorry, at school, into my practice schedule, my teaching schedule, I put in time for myself. When I first started, I was having back-to-back -back lessons and back-to-back -back classes, and I thought, man, my students are all getting better, but I'm just like watching them get better. <laughs> this is no good. So now I'm actually at school maybe a bit longer. I'll have a lesson. I take a half an hour break and then practice for 20 minutes if there's no fires I have to put out. What do you practice? Like, give me an example of what you would practice. I like. sit down at the drums and I just play. And inevitably, I'm looking for one, simple, one new idea. So I, if I find something that I can't, I make a mistake, I go, oh, what was that? I couldn't do that. You know, because I'm improvising. I'm sitting down being creative. I'm, being, I'm improvising going, what can I, oh, 
that didn't work out. Well, my bass drum kind of, what was that? And then I'll work on various ways to improve that one thing that I couldn't do. Or I'll pick an idea that I'm fixated on that I've got, oh, I've just remembered that I haven't done that in a year or so, whatever, you know, and I work on that for a week. I just need one idea. And, you know, or I write. I just need one idea. And I can, if I get an idea, part of my practice schedule is practice being creative, practice creativity. So I've kind of trained myself now to be creative uh, constantly. So if I sit down to drums, I'll just play and look for an idea. All I need is one idea. I call it a gem. And I just need that one idea. Just give me something. Or if I see a student do something, say, that's really cool. Show me that. I'm going to work on that. I like it. And then I would work on the idea. And once I could play the idea, I look at how can I manipulate the idea? If it's someone else's, how can I manipulate the idea to try and make it mine? By using various dynamics, various sound sources. How can I change it? Or how can I make, manipulate this one idea into five ideas? You know, by just sitting and playing the drums. So I'm constantly striving to be better because I know I want to be better and I hope this isn't it, I, you know. But again, coming from Bruce Lee, his whole thing about being like water, uh, you know, when water is stale and stagnant, it, it, it doesn't flow anymore. That's it, you know. Uh, I don't want to get to that point where I stop learning. So I look at things. I lift, learn, look at different things. I listen to different music. I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to be creative and, and move forward. Well, it's been a real pleasure meeting you. Oh, man. As I, I said, that video blew me away, <laughs> and you've blown me away even more. So thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a gas. Mm-hmm.